Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome to Quiddity on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and in today's episode, I am really excited that we are going to be able to bring you an interview that I conducted recently with Devin O'Donnell and Adam Green from Bibliotheca. Now, you may have seen the Bibliotheca project on Kickstarter last year. They were raising money to produce uh, what eventually became the finished product we're going to talk about today, a typographically elegant multi-volume edition of the entire biblical library. This is a really cool project. It's a really beautiful finished product. I have it at home on my shelf. Um, and I think you're going to be really interested to hear what these guys have to say. If you head over, head over to Kickstarter, you can just search Bibliotheca and you can see a lot of the information, the extra information that they posted there and see how the project kind of just evolved and developed. Uh, you can also just head over to bibliotheca.com. That is B-I-B-L-I-O-T-H-E-C-A dot C-O, bibliotheca.co. Uh, but, you know, a little bit more about the project quickly before we dive into the interview. Uh, Bibliotheca is the entire biblical library separated into volumes and designed purely for reading. The text is reverently treated in classic typographic style, free of all added conventions such as chapter numbers, verse numbers, section headers, cross-references, and notes. Now, this may seem like it would be a little bit... Um, you know, take a little bit of time to get used to, and it kind of does, but it's also at the same time a really unique experience reading the Bible this way. It makes it feel a little more like literature and a little less like um, like a scholarly manuscript or, say, a science textbook or something like that. Now, there's obviously places for all those things like the notes and the verse numbers and the section headers and cross-references and all that kind of stuff. There's, you know, there's a place for that as far as studying scripture, but there's also a place for viewing it as poetry and as literature. And Bibliotheca really helps with that. It, it kind of like strips away all that other stuff and it helps you to just focus on the poetry of scripture itself. It includes a fresh scholar-reviewed update of the 1901 American Standard Version. It was manufactured in Germany 
in a really beautiful sewn lay flat binding with smooth stone paper and pure cotton book cloth. I mean, this is a beautiful book. If you buy this book, if you have it on your shelf, it will be among the most beautiful books that you own. Or they will be among the most beautiful books that you own. Think the best work that Folio's done. It also includes an original typeface specially prepared for the edition. Uh, the, the typeface was designed by Adam Green, the founder of this project. And in the interview, we talk a lot about how that typeface came to be. I admit, at times, the interview gets a little bit nerdy. I'm, I'm going to admit that right off the bat. Uh, but hopefully you'll stick with us and, and uh, you know, find that interesting. If, if not, then I hope you'll stick through it to the end until we discuss you know, some of the, the translation issues and, and all kinds of other stuff like that. Um, as I said, you can learn more at bibliotheca.co. You can buy a copy there. You can support the project as they continue forward, you know, developing further resources to go with it. Uh, but for now, I guess that's enough of an intro to just kick it over to my interview with Adam Green and Devin O'Donnell. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, thanks so much for listening to Quiddity and the Circe Institute Podcast Network. So my first question is, I guess, the generic question. Um what inspired this project like it's such a big undertaking and it obviously took you know years to to get to completion you know to go from just the concept to where you had it was in people's hands but what motivated or inspired you to 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 do something like this yeah i mean i answer this question probably a little bit differently every time Somebody yeah, it is. Me, I'm sure it is the question you get all the time. So I hate to start with it, but I got to ask it. No, it's okay. Um, I think that, well, uh, it took, it did take, it took many years to get to what would eventually become Bibliotheca, what you, you know, what you see now and what I envisioned um, when I launched the Kickstarter campaign. But the idea started many years before that. And, mm -hmm. um, that was really just, um, that it, it came out of my, what I sort of stumbled into as a designer when mm -hmm. I, when I graduated from, uh, school and with my design degree, I, I just, um, happened to stumble into book projects. Um, that was the work that was available to me through the connections that I had. And I, I'm kind of obsessive about um, things when it comes to design. So I wanted to understand what I was doing really well. I wanted to understand the history of it. Um, that's a really, that was a really great part of my education. Um, at my, as a designer that um, we were, we were taught to do things um, that are rooted in, uh, in history. So mm -hmm. we were taught to, to look at the history of our discipline and, and draw from it and develop it. Mm -hmm. So I think that was my approach when I started doing book design. I wanted to know, okay, who designed all these typefaces that I'm using and when, when yeah. and why and for what purpose and, yeah. um, and what traditionally um, might you consider a well-designed book and how, you know, how can I come up with a, a, a pretty solid idea of, you know, how to approach design problems as a book designer hmm. based on the, the history of book design. Hmm. So, you know, and that just keeps on leading further and further back. Yeah. Um, 
and and of course I grew up with the Bible as well, and and then it wasn't it wasn't long before I started seeing that the Bible um, as a text is treated um, almost entirely differently from any other uh, from any other classic or foundational literature. Like so, design wise, you uh, mean? Design wise, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I guess otherwise again, as well. Yeah, I mean, otherwise as well, definitely. I mean, we we kind of dissect it, and I think um, it design wise and otherwise. So I think the the uh, typical approach to biblical literature is to lay it out on a table and dissect it and and break it down into its smallest components and yeah. and reconstruct systems from from those components and and understand it hmm. that way. But I think there's there's as much um, validity to understanding it or understanding the, um, the parts as a whole. So I think, uh, and by parts, I mean the books that make up the whole anthology. So, hmm. um, you know, anyway, I, I, I grew up with biblical literature and it, and the weird thing about my upbringing was that, um, very much in line with that, way of thinking about the Bible, I was, I was never really told or taught to read the Bible as a literary work. Um, there, there, there were very few tools given to me to understand it that way. So, um, it wasn't until during and after university that I started to read, um, different scholars on the Bible as the literature, which was for me, it seems so obvious, but for me at the time it was very uh, surprising and shocking and enlightening and exciting to suddenly see the Bible, not so much as a, um, not so much solely as a source of doctrine or um, theological truths or self-help, but as uh, a collection of, of literary works of art. Um, so, so that perspective, uh, coupled with my, um, my pursuit of, of greater discipline as a book designer became, um, naturally became the seed for Bibliotheca. Um, and that's where that sort of grew from over a span of several years until I launched the campaign. Yeah. So I'm sure we're going to talk a bunch about that. Some of the, the ways that your design choices affected the, like, or changed the way you reread scripture. But I'm really interested first in the choices you made, like the specific choices you made design wise. Um, and to get there, I, I guess I want to follow up on your, your comment about doing all that research you did. So, was it kind of like you you like had a self directed master's in book design? Is that sort of what it was? Like you just dove in and and um, just studied and studied and studied and researched and researched and looked at old looked at old original first edition books and um, learn learn stuff on your own? Or was there was it directed? Was this all part of like actual schooling, so to speak? No, yeah, it was self directed. It was um, you know I think I. I happened upon a lot of things. I mean, in, in, sure. 
I mean, these days it's hard to just happen upon something. Google is going to tell you what you want, what you need to know <laughs> before before you can decide for yourself, really. Yeah. But so, you know, I just looked into, all right, who am I going to read if I want to know, um, if I want to understand the last century in typography? And Eric Gill was a name that kept coming up. Um, he was active in the... Um, early in the 20th century and um and he he created a, a lot of beautiful typefaces and books and um but also was involved with sculpture and architecture and illustration um all things uh design or, or i mean and he was an artist really um, yeah, but yeah. He, he he created a lot of the typefaces that we still have pre-installed in our computer uh, in our computers like um uh gill sands and perpetua and joanna yeah. um uh, and, and you know i think he was a big modern influence on me um another guy named hans modersteig uh sorry hans modersteig he um he did something called well what people call now the verona new testament or the modersteig new testament and um, he set up a couple of presses in Italy. He was a, he was a German, um, and he moved to Italy and set up a couple of presses there and started doing all sorts of classics. And he would commission um, designers and illustrators to create these beautiful editions of classics. But he did a New Testament in the 50s, and um, it was a paragraphed edition, a newly paragraphed edition of the King James Version um, with some artwork, um, interspersed throughout and there were no verse numbers. It was, it was still divided by chapter, but, um, that was a really inspiring piece to me. Mm. Um, and anyway, so I kept on uh, looking into figures like this who were not only, um, masters of typography and book design, but who also had an interest in, um, the literature itself that they were that they were trying to give form to, yeah. Um, hmm. And so, so someone like Eric Gill, he wasn't just a designer; he was also a writer. And so, I, you know, it, it was always fun to. He has this um, kind of classic on typography called an essay on typography, um, and <laughs> it's aptly named. And yeah. uh, that was a really inspiring work to me. It it it's a great encapsulation of his idealism. As a Roman Catholic designer, somebody who's trying to pursue uh, beauty and purity, and I mean, he talks about everything from how you use, um, you know, what the difference is between a handmade work of art and an industrial, an industrially made work of art, and what the strengths and weaknesses of both hmm. may be, and how we should approach each differently, because hmm. um, he did both in his career. And, um, and so that was, that was very inspiring to me I, because I think, um, I think in today, uh, design is very much about, um, is very much about the surface level. And I think, hmm. uh, it's, a, it's very much about what things look like and the consideration for how things are made and how things come about, um, is less important to us now than it was to someone like Eric Gill. Um, 
And I think the transition was more apparent there, though, because uh, there was a time when everything was somewhat handmade. Um, even the machines that we use were hand operated. Hmm. But now I think we're so we're so far removed from that that it's easier to think about things in terms of just in terms of how they turn out at the end of the process, and not in terms of how the process actually contributes to what a thing becomes in the end. Hmm. Um, and so that was very, really inspiring and insightful to me um, as I sought a, um, an alternate form for biblical literature. Um, you know, I think that is, as much as I want to talk about how it turned out and what it looks like, I also want to um, point back to how it was made and how it was developed. Yeah. Um, you know, so can I, can I follow up on that? Really yeah. Quick? Yeah. Um, Adam, you've, you've kind of explained your part, part of your aesthetic as, as being, um, governed by, uh, you know, rethinking traditional forms in through a kind of minimalism, um, and which I, I really like and it, that kind of simplicity that went into the project. Can you, yeah, I mean, I think uh, when I when I say that rethinking traditional forms through uh, with a with a kind of minimalist approach, um, it actually it's it's always surprising to me when I um, look back at history. I think when when people think of traditional for a traditional form of the Bible, a lot of people a lot of people's imagination, I think, goes straight to medieval manuscripts or something like that, um, which are highly decorated and, um, as, you know, all kinds of illuminations and, and, and gold foil inks and um, bright, bright colors, yeah, full margins and, and be- this beautiful script. But if you go back further, um, the traditional form of a book is really uh, a rather simple thing, at least in um in the biblical tradition so um so i think part of what i was trying to do with bibliotheca and the reason it is so um i would almost call it primitive in design is that i was reaching back past the renaissance past the middle ages um to uh the most ancient forms of these texts that we have available to us, which are, are extremely stripped down, um, and very bare bones. And, um, they almost completely lack decoration. Although you Mm. can always argue that typography Mm. is decoration, that, that the form of a letter is a, is a way of beautifying, um, the content that it represents. But, okay. So can I ask a question about that? Cause one of the questions, the big things that I've been wondering as I've been you know, browsing it and reading it. And I've, you know, I've done a lot of just kind of glancing over the whole, like all five books or whatever it is. And then I've also done a lot of just actually reading it more closely. Um, and in both cases, I, I got to thinking a lot about why you made the choice of some of the typography that you did. And, um, and you were talking about the idea of making sure that the, that the ideas and the typography are consistent, like the, that they match up and the, and that the, that this hypography represents the right things. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about deciding what was the process like trying to, you know, settle on a specific, you know, font or design a specific font that, that represents 
the complexity of scripture and you know there's so many ideas and so many truths and so many stories and how do you find something that can can kind of run the gamut so to speak it sounds like a daunting task yeah i mean it it was and i think part of the way one of the benefits of um of mid-century art and design Mm -hmm. is that it is that it looks back toward um primitive forms there's always this uh eh uh gombrick has this book called the preference for the primitive and it's about how there's always these periodical um relapses to primitive forms um Hmm. in in art in design in literature um and so i think you know so i think part of the way that you tap into part luckily for me i think part of the way that i tapped into a form that would suit biblical literature was by tapping into that mentality like this preference for the primitive um so i think in in terms of the typeface itself the font um i wanted to create something that was very simple but that was also um that that kind of had a a hand written um quality about it Hmm. because that's where typefaces come from i mean typefaces Mm -hmm. are um they're prefabricate prefabricated handwriting basically that's the idea of of a typeface um and so i think we you know i think as as technology has advanced and as uh, type design has gone on, um, has sort of developed, um, and evolved, we've moved further and further away from trying to mimic handwritten forms, but there's been, there's also been a a reversion to that as well. Um, because of, uh, certain thinkers, um, in the type world, but I won't bore you with all of that, but I think, (laughs) um, but, but anyway, my, my, my thinking really was to create, I mean, I mean the idea of the typeface is you, you do have to work within your time because you can't create something that mm. is distracting. If you, if you want someone to sit down and read a long form text, like the books of the Bible, you have to, um, you have to give, you have to give it to them in a form that isn't going to, uh, direct their attention away from the content itself. So a typeface that is very unique or, um, you know, that, that calls out to the reader, look at me, look at me is, is, is something to be avoided at all costs. So the idea for me pursuing the typeface was, all right, well, in my mind, what are the best, um, what are the best forms that are out there now? Mm -hmm. Uh, and from the past hundred years. So I was looking at, type designs of Eric Gill and a more contemporary typographer, uh, Bram de Dos, um, who's a Dutch typographer. And, um, I, uh, was inspired by their forms. I was also looking at the forms and the thinking of Garrett Nordzig, um, another Dutch typographer. Um, and their approach really just seemed to be, uh, prioritize legibility and simplicity of form, um, and remain rooted enough in history of type forms that, um, 
your that that the experience of that the experience isn't distracting for the reader. You know, you don't want the reader to stop and say, "Oh, that's a really interesting looking lowercase r you've designed there." You want them to read, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that that was my approach. But then, of course, I, I do confess that my like my model for Bibliotheca throughout the whole thing, I had posted up an, an image of the Isaiah scroll in my office. Yeah. And I was constantly looking at this when I was designing the page layout, when I was designing the typeface. Um, and so I, I was just uh, I, I've always been in awe of that document and just how ancient and pure and beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the letter forms, um, kind of have an Isaiah scroll uh, character to them. There's sort of like a, a swashy brush-like um, aesthetic to the typeface that I designed that I think mm. um, comes through just because I was looking at that so much. That's I, I remember when, yeah, I remember when I first contacted Adam after uh, or during the the Kickstarter explosion, and I told him I wanted to join him in the scriptorium <laughs> <laughs> amongst sheep guts and bellum and parchments and um, and uh, but there there was um, there was some truth to that in insofar as like his uh, the office the biblioteca office being a bit of a scriptorium obviously with different tools um, but um, even you know the the manner in which I, I think I remember you uh, describing it, Adam, was scribal, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the typeface, a little thicker. Um, and the way the text block fell, there was also this kind of medieval um, thickness to, to the form mm-hmm. um, that I remember being, uh, I just really loved uh, about mm-hmm. it. Um, there's something about the attraction to the eye, to, the, to those lines and to that, that block of text that I think was really important. So, so do you guys consider there to be a, a fine line between readability and fonts that are too loud or ornate or whatever? You you mentioned sometimes you have to sometimes decide between them, but are the are ornate fonts typically, in your opinion, um, do they typically lack read legibility? Um, I think. Well, I mean, the the in typography, the difference between the term legibility and readability is that the former refers to um, whether or not it's possible to read, okay. and the latter refers to whether or not it's um, fluid to read. So I think okay. you know you can you can create a legible font without creating a readable font, and I think for, so. For me, it's like right. a or or a read or a good readable font. So right. I think right. that um, hmm. any any type of distraction, anything that is that goes beyond tradition, um, has to be subtle enough to assimilate. To, you know, for the reader to be able to assimilate to the to the new situation as they're reading a long form typography. So. Um, if you want somebody to, if you expect somebody to sit down and read something for a long time, you can't, you know, you just can't throw in extra flourishes that are irrelevant to the content. And um, now, there, because of the the plethora of typefaces we have available to us now, the the modern reader is more equipped 
to read more styles of typefaces than they oh, ever have been before. Yeah. You know, we're so inundated with different typefaces all the mm -hmm. time with slightly different characteristics that probably most people don't even recognize when they're reading yeah. uh, a modern versus a transitional versus a, um, versus like a, a Venetian style typeface. But yeah, anybody um, who has an Adobe account has like, you know, or a subscription has like a thousand fonts at their hand at any moment. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but then there are things that, that go over the line. Like, um, I was talking to a publisher, a friend of mine, uh, they recently published a book and they use old style ligatures that connect the S and the T. Um, you've probably seen those in, in some very old books, mm -hmm. but you don't see it anymore. And mm -hmm. it's, um, that's something that's a great example of something that it, he, he was telling me they were getting complaints because mm. people had never seen that before and it was just distracting. And, yeah. um, you know, for someone like me, you know, I would find that charming and, and, um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I would enjoy yeah. that because I, because I, I look at old books a lot. And, um, so I become accustomed to it, but when you're thinking about the, the general reader, you have to consider those types of things. Um, as distractions. And um, you, so it's a choice. You know, if you want the reader to to consider those, th if you want the reader to notice, then you can incorporate those types of elements. But my goal was really for the reader not to notice the typeface, but to, uh, but to really just to read the content without, you know, of course I want, upon uh, close examination, I want people to be able to appreciate um, the typeface, but I don't want it to be something that, um, prevents the reader from reading. And you, you did design the typeface that's used in the book, right? Yes, I did. I did. But I, but, at, but at the same time, I always, I always make the disclaimer that it's my first typeface. And I, I did create it over the span of probably about four years. I mean, I was changing it all the way up until the time that we sent it to, to press, to print. And, um, but, you know, is heavily, heavily influenced by the typefaces of Eric Gill, Hans Modersteig, and Bram D. Dos, especially those three. Um, so, um, you know, like just because those their typefaces are are my favorite typefaces and they're yeah. the ones that I look at and admire the most yeah. um, and I look at them closely. So, of course, being young I, and because I, it's my first typeface, I'm I'm pretty much just mimicking their work. And yeah, I think, yeah. um, I, what do they say? Like you can't contribute anything new until you've been doing it for 10 years or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, and I certainly haven't been doing type design for 10 years, but well, one of the things I want to, uh, go back to is one of the ligatures that we actually, that you were actually considering was the ash, right? Yes. Um, yes. That we went back and forth on that. Yeah. If, if you remember, should, should this, is this going to be too distracting to, to include it? I, we we both actually thought it was it was great. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I secretly wanted it, but yes, the we, same both, time. we both wanted it. Yeah. We actually we ended up we ended up putting it to kind of a vote. Yeah. So that the ash ligature uh, is probably uh, just for those who don't know, it's the it's the combination it's the ligature of the of the letters A and E, but it actually it's actually um, it's actually just a different letter in in mm. um, Anglo, in older yeah. languages. I'm not sure yeah. which ones, but but in the ASV, which is our which was the base translation that we revised, mm -hmm. uh, words like Judea and Galilean 
uh, contained in an ash. And um, so we were deciding whether or not to retain that. So ultimately, I ended up, I ultimately ended up sending samples side by side of words with and without the ash in context to my friends and basically said, well, what do you think about this ligature? I mean, is this distracting for you? And they almost all came back and said, yeah, you should just separate it out. It's like, it's too weird. Um, so, so Devin and I, um, you know, the man, yes, <laughs> yes. That the fun. loss of the ash. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. I would have liked that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, see, we knew that there were some, there were people out there. That were right. Play. It's, yeah. it's like the ligature where I think those who are, who are accustomed to, um, to reading, uh, you know, older editions are comfortable or more comfortable with that type of thing. But, you know, just, did, the, just another example of a decision that has to be made. Yeah. Speaking of which, did you guys ever consider, did, like, did you ever consider just using, already you know typefaces that are already out there that people are comfortable with that are just commonly used in book design right now or did you did you know from the beginning that you that you were going to customize and design something specifically for this project um i knew very early on that i would design my own typeface in fact that was one of the very first things that i did when i came up with the idea to do to do uh this sort of multi-volume um, uh, edition of, of biblical literature. Mm-hmm. And so I, be, because that came out of, um, th- that came out of an old rabbinical tradition when um, mm-hmm. in the, in the creation of, I, I think I talked about this a little bit in the original Kickstarter video, but um, when they were, um, Preparing to preparing a manuscript of Torah, they would um, ev- everything about that process was was holy and set apart. So they would prepare the ink and the parchment in, in a special way that they didn't do for any other type of literature. Um, and they also used a script, um, a type of handwriting that was reserved specifically for that purpose. So. Um, you know, and, and everything about from the way that they treated the, the actual physical object when it was completed to the way that they disposed of it, everything about it was, um, was absolutely set apart. And so I thought that idea was, um, I was, I was very inspired by that idea. And, and so I thought very early on, well, I would love to use an original typeface. I don't think I knew immediately whether I would do it or not, but I knew somewhat quickly that it was just going to, it was going to come down to me to create it. So I, that's when I started, um, getting more interested in, in type design specifically. And, and I started working on my handwritten forms. So I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I got kind of a set of broad nib pens and started writing traditional Roman letter forms. And, um, that was, you know, that was the beginning of, this typeface was, um, you know, me just kind of writing shaky letters with a broadened pen. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever consider, I mean, did you know from the beginning you were going to do a serif font? Absolutely. Yes. I, I think the only way to, I mean, again, it, it comes down to what, 
the general reader is accustomed to. Right. And reading reading uh, a lot of text in a sans serif typeface is just not one of those things. And I think yeah, yeah. And it's it's not a you know like I maybe someday it will be I don't know or maybe there'll be some kind of hybrid. You're starting to see that that type mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Where maybe the 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 thickness of the strokes is pretty consistent throughout the entire letter and the serifs are less emphasized. But yeah, I, yeah. I I did really want to appeal to a more traditional um, a more traditional approach in that and the, the typeface that I designed is very much a um, traditional book face. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like maybe more and more like magazines, for example, are drifting towards sans fonts. But I, yeah, I, yeah. But even they, even they are still kind of are using slab serifs, which is the, the, the uh, type yeah. of letter I just described. Which is like yeah, a, yeah. they're they're kind of the if you took the slabs, if you took the serifs off of them, they would look like sans serifs, and that there's not a whole lot of variation in yeah, the oh, yeah, thickness yeah. of the of the letter. But um, you know, so the 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 contrast between thick and thin that you naturally get from a broad nib pen is what, in my mind anyway, constitutes the traditional uh letter form of the book so yeah and i can just imagine like you know the the monks in their rooms or you know just carefully 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 you know their heads real close to the paper just you know writing down scripture and you know every little line every little mark being so important i can imagine you like going back in time doing that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that probably would have been what i did if i, yeah. if I had born in, the, in that time so i would have gone blind at the age of 30 yeah <laughs> doing that by candlelight that happened anyway yeah, <laughs> so, yeah that's so what about um what about things like uh justification or like margins and stuff like that um it seems like you Sorry. spent a lot of time really thinking about that you know, the, there's, you've got left margin and right margin and like the, um, the way it's justified, like all that kind of stuff seems like you didn't, you didn't, you didn't just kind of throw that together. Um, how, what was that process like? Yeah. Adam, Adam's pretty willy nilly when it comes to certain things about the book. I I was trying to get him to rethink everything, you know, (laughs) now everything, everything about it was, was there was a purpose. There was a reason. Yeah, it seems like a really willy-nilly project. Like you just, you, know, you didn't, you know, spend a lot of time on some of this stuff. Yeah, it kind of just, it kind of just came together. Everything just. <laughs> I took a poll. Yeah. And just went with the poll answers. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Um, yeah, but the justification was um, to start there. That sure. was really just a decision based on manuscripts, and okay. and like we get this idea of justified, fully justified text, which is where your text uh, lines up on both the left yeah. and right hand margin. Yeah. Um, so that it looks like a perfect rectangle. Um, we get that idea from, so it was kind of a gradual process, but the idea is that in ancient manuscripts, there was really no concern for, for like a, a perfectly rectangular text block. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but gradually over time, um, the materials for manuscripts, were very precious and difficult to prepare. So what you would do is you would just sort of, you would end a line, you create a measure and you would end the line wherever 
wherever it ends and you'd start on the next line, but there was no consideration for where you were in the word. Um, so they would, they would still write with consistent spacing, but they would just draw a dash or uh, an older symbol of a dash and they'd begin, they'd continue the word on the next line, even if they had only gotten through one letter or if there was one letter left to begin the next line. Or they so, would just misspell it. Or they would just, yeah, they would change the spelling. Um, yeah, so that's my kind of that's my kind of plan right there. Right, right. Actually, even all the way up until the King James version, they were the printers would, you know, they would spell the same word five different ways in the same column, um, just so that the justification would be acceptable. Now they because they, they were still very concerned about the space between words at that time. They didn't want these huge stretches of of space between words like we see now in our fully justified texts. Yeah. But, yeah. um, but you know, so gradually that became, uh, I think it just became part of our sensibilities, uh, as readers, we wanted to see, um, fully justified text. And, you know, so in the Renaissance, that's what you see. But again, it, for, for many, for many years, even hundreds of years, the rules of hyphenation and spelling were, were very loosey goosey. So we could kind of, they could kind of just change the text or cut off a word wherever they wanted to start the next line. But now those rules are more strict. So when we're trying to follow the rules of hyphenation and spelling, and at, at the same time that we're trying to um, make sure that the text block is perfectly rectangular, you end up having to space the words out, or um, or even reduce the amount of space between words to fit them on the on the line to get them to break at the right places. And so, in other words, it just has become a very unnatural process, and it can be done very very well, but it's no easier or harder than unjustified text, left aligned, or right ragged text, whatever you want to call it. Do you mean um, no harder to design, or, or like no different for the reader as an experience? It's no. It's well. That, yeah, so there are different opinions about that. But, so <laughs> yeah. in my in my opinion, uh, I think consistent spacing should be prioritized above this arbitrary rule of of a rectangle text block. Um, uh, and I think consistent spacing between words creates a rhythmic reading experience. And some people would argue, and I and I can't reference a study, but some people would argue that um, lines of unequal length actually help the reader to move from one line to the next and find their place on the next line. Hmm. Um, some I believe would, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Some, some people would make the exact opposite argument, though. Yeah. There's, there's arguments on both sides, because I think if you do fully justified text well, it's, it's equally as readable as unjustified text. Um, I've seen plenty of great examples of fully justified text uh, where, the, where the variation of space between words from line to line is is not uh, noticeable. And that's the key. Uh, but when you start talking about um, like a, a gaping holes between words mm -hmm. on one line, followed by a line where the words are condensed together, where there's virtually no space between them, which then happens, you have a problem. So like for people who don't know, which and that happens because in order to make your right margin justified, or your right, right, it, right happens, to, it happens because a, a careless typesetter wanted to use a justified text block or they were told they had to because that's just what publishers want. Right. Yeah. So I think, um, that's probably you know, more I, common. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, um, 
yeah, there's just sort of this, this standard. But my argument, when people would ask me about that back in, during the campaign, my argument um, against justified text, part of it anyway, was that th- through especially the Internet, through, through a digital interface, we've all become very accustomed, kind of without even realizing it, to left-aligned text because uh, a lot of text on the Internet in a digital environment is left aligned because, um, you know, it's, it's hard, it's very hard to do good, uh, fully justified text on a web page. Right. So the better alternative is just to, is just to let the line break where it breaks and start on the next line. Now it's not as simple as just, um, you know, in, in terms of typesetting a book, it, it's not always as simple as just letting the line break where it breaks and starting the next line. Sometimes you have to um, exert your, um, you, you have to, you have to shape the paragraph a little bit. So, so that it doesn't have like a really strange shape on the right hand edge. That's distracting. Right. Um, you, you're looking for a balanced rag that um that doesn't look like it has a pattern but that also doesn't look um like uh totally chaotic so you you need to find a balance there Um, but the key is to i mean the the purpose of it is to allow for perfectly consistent spacing across the entire text between words so you're never stretching out um the spaces between words and actually now in contemporary typesetting um, you, you have the ability to change the space between letters from line to line. And so that's actually um, manipulating the design of the typeface because the type designer is the one who decides how far apart the letters should be from one another at a certain size. Um, and so now typesetters are manipulating that space and, in effect, uh, modifying the typeface from line to line. And you see that a lot, actually, in Bible design. Hmm. So... Um, so by using um, a left range or a ragged right text, uh, by using a, that type of typesetting, um, I was able to preserve consistent space in between letters and words throughout the entire text. Hmm. I mean, that, that's the goal, and that to me is what contributes to readability, um, not the appearance of a uh, rectangle on a page. Right. So, but yet, at the same time, and while there may not be a rectangle, it does seem like, you know, it seems like you've kind of gone, I mean, I guess I don't know. I'm not a professional, but I've done a few projects and I've done a little research. And it does seem like there is something of a sort of classical or I guess you've used the word traditional a lot, like way that you laid out the uh, the margins, like with the wide, like the those smaller margins in the gutter kind of centered on the gutter and then the... Um, the bigger margins on the right and the left on the edge of the page and then down by where the page numbers are. I don't actually know what that section is called, the bottom margin. <laughs> it seems you've, yeah. got, you've given it a lot more space in at the top. And like that's the like that aspect ratio is kind of like the classical way of laying a book out, isn't it? Yeah, and that goes back that goes back millennia. I mean we're we're I mean, yes, you see it a lot in medieval texts, but it's also if you look at some of the oldest um if you look at the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, and the New Testament is um, is widely thought to be kind of the reason that we use books today instead of scrolls, um, because of because of, that was sort of the way it was disseminated um, in the form of the codex rather than the scroll. Um, but if you so if you look at those um, manuscripts, 
those those codices, um, you see exactly this type of margin, very narrow at the top and gutter, but uh, very wide um, on the outside and bottom. So um, is that is that Van, Van de Graaff or something like that? Is that the name? There was a designer. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm making I that up. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> I just remember I like know. going down the Wikipedia hole at one point when I was trying to <laughs> just trying to learn some basics. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, the, Eric Gill had, had a really nice way of simplifying things. So rather than give you like a, uh, a formula for how many characters you should have per line, he would say things like, uh, you don't want any more than you want about 10 to 12 words per line and certainly no more than 15. Okay. Um, and then he would say things like, um, the margins should really be, uh, relative to one another, four units on the bottom, three units on the outside, two units on the top and one unit in the gutter. So, you know, and that's, that's a really, um, simplistic way of breaking it down. Um, but it, it's a, it's a really great guideline, um, that appeals to traditional forms, uh, the way, in other words, that these that that classic texts, or not even classic texts, but the way that texts have been laid out for for centuries and centuries, um, and now you know, I think because of the t- binding styles we're using, because of the technology we're using, and the all the corners we're trying to cut with with books to make them cheaper. Um, yeah. Typically, now what you see is pretty much equal margins on all sides. And actually, the gutter tends to be the widest margin because you have to get the text out of the out of the gutter because very few people are using lay flat bindings anymore. Um, yeah, like your used, mass manufactured paperbacks. Right. Right. You know, I guess you can break the binding though. <laughs> yes, you can break the binding. And you, can, you can pry it open. Yeah. But yeah, that's 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 why that's why the margin is typically wider because you know. Um, and even even with sewn books, there there's still a lot of people who are using sewn books, but they're using like a PUR glue, which is basically just a glue that that um, solidifies, uh, um, that becomes very hard when it solidifies, so that the flexibility in the spine just go it, it's just not there, it's non-existent. So you still have to have a wider margin in the center. But the idea, I mean, the traditional idea is that you want the text the two text blocks to sort of feel like a unit on the spread. Um, and you, yeah. you want the flow from one to the other to be, to feel very natural and you want to create enough space around the edges for you to put your fingers and your thumbs and, um, and to separate the text from the outside world. So as is, you're reading. is the fully justified approach, is that just kind of a shortcut to making that happen in a modern, like in the modern situation with the way we, the bindings we use and the materials we use now? Would you say that's true? Well, I think to to achieve uh, to achieve to get a desirable result with unjustified text with left range text, you you have to have space, and that's something that you don't have in modern books. So I guess yes, yeah. I think I think yeah, you're right. I think fully justified text is an easy way to define the margins really clearly, um, and just and just eliminate inconsistencies. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about binding then, because um, the binding, you know, it's like anybody who loves folio books, obviously, like has a, probably a collection of books that are at least somewhat similar, like to what you guys did here. But yeah, it was it's printed in Germany. It's like this cloth bound hardback books. I mean, they're they're gorgeous. So, how did you go about choosing 
um, I guess who to work with for that. And then, um, the, how did the design part of that go? Cause that's, you know, there's a little bit of typography on it in terms, like it says Bibliotheca and it says like the new Testament, for example. But other than that, it's like, it's a really beautiful book with hardly saying anything on it. And then also, how did you settle on like the kind of pages? Because a lot of these quote unquote fancy books have, they still have like the gold pages or, you know, it's not like even just choosing yeah. like the color of the white, like the, the level of the right. brightness of the white is, is a decision that has to be made. So how did all, how did that whole process happen? Well, <laughs> I, guess, like, I guess it was just, it's a lot of, it was just a lot of time and, and yeah. comparison of materials and, but, I, but yeah. yeah, I mean the decision to use, you know, who would, the, deciding who would manufacture the books. I mean, that for me was pretty easy. It, it was just about, um, so there are several factors there. One is you need to find somebody who's, who's, um, who does cold glue bindings. Um, so, and, and who's used to doing them, who does them frequently. Mm-hmm. So they know what, so they know what they're doing. So a cold glue binding is, it's just essentially a type of, it's a manufacturing process for books. Um, where you use, you apply cold glue and then you have to let the book sit for at least a day before you finish the binding. Um, and what the result is this type of glue is, is much more flexible. It, it dries more slowly and, and the result is a more flexible binding. Hmm. Um, so a hot glue or like a PUR glue, uh, dries very quickly. And so it's less, it costs less to manufacture cause it doesn't have to sit around the factory for a day before you finish it. But, um, but it dries very stiff, so and there's no flexibility. So, um, so yeah. So there's one there's one factor is it had to be cold glue binding. Um, the other factor is it just had to be somebody with a, with a light touch. And I think uh, it's easy to tell there are uh, cold glue uh, people who binders who do cold glue, but they'll they'll apply too much glue. Um, so you'll actually, if you actually look at the top of the book down the spine, yeah. you can sort of see sometimes up to like a millimeter or more of glue, um, between the spine and the pages. So it's, it's just an absurd amount of glue. Um, and, and so you know, those are the types of things I was looking for and, and well-rounded spines. Um, and then there's, then there's also, uh, other factors like, um, the book block that is the bound, uh, the bound stack of paper that is the book um, sort of has to be pasted to the boards um, in the right position. And there's a certain amount, there's a certain amount of the board that should remain um, free near the spine that allows the book to lay flat. If, if you paste the, you know, and th- those are, these are subtleties that really are pretty much non-existent and, and, uh, pretty much non-existent in American manufacturing, book manufacturing. So, so it turns out Germany has it. <laughs> Germany has it. Germany has absolutely. Germany has it. Uh, the U.S. used to have it, and so did the U.K. and and other countries. Um, but now, I mean, as far as I can tell, I found I found in Germany and in the Netherlands, and uh, maybe a little bit in Belgium, um, mm. and I'm sure there are other countries too. But I, I got samples from many, many uh, binaries, and uh, Germany was most consistently the one that did the cleanest, um, most uh, most delicate uh, and precise 
bindings. Um, and yeah, this seems, I mean, this is part of the, 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 per, the discussion that goes back to where we, where we kind of originally mentioned how we're not just concerned with the product, right? You're, you're concerned with, with the process as well and how that brings, how that, how that process is informed by aesthetic and qualitative concerns. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is how things are made and, and know, knowing the producer as well as the product uh, is really important. We're, we're so detached from the things that are, that we consume, right? Um, so yeah, this is an ability to actually know not just who's making it, but how it's being made. And that was also, I think, a really great uh, element in, in the process and the project. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And thanks for, I mean, that reminds me, I think the part of the um, decision to use a European manufacturer, all of this stuff can be, can be done in China easily. And in, in most of the, uh, and, and for much, much cheaper. Um, and, and uh, most of, in fact, most of the nice books, most of the art books that you see in bookstores, um, you know, with stone bindings that lay flat that have sort of a, any kind of specialty finish, like a rounded spine or something like that. Most of them are made in China. Um, and I, you know, for all, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that all, all China manufacturing is, is horrible, but I do think that it, it simply is a place where there's less environmental regulation. And so I think that the, for me, the, the desire to work, uh, in Germany, um, just to go, I, I mean, I, I went even to Germany and I visited various factories and I ended up choosing Kozel, not just because of the quality of book they did, although they, they really were the best at the scale that I needed. Um, uh, but also because it was an environment that was really nice for the people who worked there. Mm. And you could tell that there was a, um, there was a real mutual respect between, everyone who worked at the company and people who worked there were proud to work there and were proud of what they did there. Mm. Um, and so, and, and that was, that was really easy to see. And, um, and you know, of all the places that I, that I, that I visited, um, I visited, I think four different bindaries in Europe and I think a couple in the U S actually. Um, but it, it just seemed like the, um, it was just a, it was a nice environment where the, the people really took an interest, the people who worked there really took an interest in what they were doing and were proud of the work they were doing hmm. and, um, and like, and enjoyed being there. And they, you know, they were, um, they were happy to meet me and they were, they were, um, you know, they, it was just a great respectful environment for yeah. the people who worked there. Yeah, so like I, true you know, craftsmen. That, yeah. And that was, that was my, that was something that I was looking for was it was a place where, um, I wouldn't have to ask them to, to do better than they yeah. were already doing. Yeah. And I think most places, most of the other places that I visited, it felt like I would have to push them uphill a little bit. Whereas mm -hmm. this one was sort of like, I, I knew they would meet me halfway. I knew they wanted to make it really well to begin with. I like the poetry too of like a company from Germany being involved in a project like this with, you know, Gutenberg and the long tradition of, mm. of, of like 
the printing press and just all that the tradition that is that just is in germany of, of yeah. that sort of thing so um so okay we're going on an hour here so i've got a question about <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully you know we haven't gotten like too inside baseball and some stuff for, for people but i want to talk a little bit about the experience that people have with it um because it's the you uh Devin, i think you mentioned the idea that we consume things yeah. so like we consume yeah. media right. we talk about that we talk about consuming media like that's that's a thing that we talk about in right. like the subculture of media creation um and yeah. you know when we publish books i mean and we read books both both ends of that there is this idea that the book's getting consumed and you know maybe read once or twice but really it's going to sit on a shelf somewhere for the most of its life but the mm-hmm. bible you know, and maybe a few handful, like a handful of other great classics, like maybe Homer, say, or Shakespeare or something. The Bible, more than any other book, gets read and reread. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of, you know, like there's, there's uh, in Christian circles, there's something you know, like honorable about the the well-worn Bible, right? That gets yeah. passed down from grandfather to grandchild and you've got dog-eared pages and it's written in and all that kind of stuff. So right. it is a book that does get read more than most books. And so the way it's consumed, so to speak, I think it's different. But how, so how did that, that idea affect the experience you wanted people to have with it? But then at the same time, it is a very different work of like a different looking Bible than most of the Bibles we have. It's not a traditional study Bible, right? There's not all kinds of margin. I mean, all kinds of notes in the margin and um, the thin paper that we're used to. So it's a very kind of non-modern way of reading the Bible. So with those two questions in mind, what experience were you going for, you know, for someone like me who's just sitting down and and just reading it? Mm. (laughs) Well, I I think, um, I mean, Adam's going to be able to speak to this more, but I think um, for me and and for the things that I was really excited about, um, I loved that there was a tension from attention to the experience in, in both form and content. Mm-hmm. And so all throughout, and that's what I, that's one of the things I really appreciated about it. Um, it, it wasn't just a, um, it wasn't just the form of the book that was being reimagined. Right. It was also the text as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for, I think aesthetically, um, similar purposes, right? The aim was was consistent throughout um, to to create a reading experience um, that um, was uh, enjoyable and rich um, in terms of the form, um, with the physical form in terms of how you 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 feel, um, right? And then also with this with kind of the full, the full sensory experience in terms of what it looks like. Right, the text and what we've been talking about, the text block and the typeface and all that. But then there's also the content as well mm-hmm. um, that that communicates, right? And um, uh, so with with the the revision uh, and then choosing an older form uh, to revise, um, there was there was a lot of thought given to to. Uh, enriching the reading experience, not necessarily making it easier, hmm. uh, but but because right because uh, um, we know that that Shakespeare is enjoyable because of its difficulty at times, right? Um, and and as a reader, we're conforming to the text and and not the text conforming to us. And that was that was kind of one thing we kept 
coming back to in, in, in terms of thinking about the, the revision of the text. Um, so make, being able to, to realize that, that we can actually hang on to some of the older language, um, we can actually maybe attempt to represent the original languages um, in, in ways that, that may not be necessarily easier, but um, can definitely be uh, really enjoyable and, and really enriching. So um, that, that's what I appreciated about it. Uh, I think for Adam... You can you can kind of speak to to sort of um, the fuller vision of of the experience. Well, I think you you summed it up really nicely. The only thing that I would say is um, the only thing that I would add to that is that um, the experience, you know, it, it it was meant to be to present itself as a way of slowing down almost. Mm. So yeah, um, I, I feel that as as a reader. Yeah, it's a, the, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's interesting because when I first started reading it, I was excited for it because it's so different than the kind of thing that I was used to, whether um, aesthetically and then also, like I said, with all the notes and all that kind of stuff. So I was excited for kind of a quieter experience, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. like where I was less about less being told what to think, you know, mm -hmm. but then at the same time, it was almost a little disorienting, not in a bad way, but it was like, wait, I have a question. So how do I solve this question now? Yeah. <laughs> All I can do is keep reading. Exactly. So like, yeah. it, it's exactly. quiet, but it's also sort of disorienting. And that's both, yeah. it's like, honestly, it was kind of frustrating at first, but not in a bad way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like right. in a way, like you have to kind of like make yourself breathe a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's times where I've, I felt similar experience where, um, since I've, I've been reading it, I, I've, Many times had to fight the urge, like, oh, wait, wait, where is this? Yeah. Wait, what? What verse is this? Yeah. I want to. Yeah. I want to remember this, or you know, I yeah. want to see what it says, and you know, but um, but then you know, moving past that, and then just continuing to read, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that and knowing that you know what, I don't need to go, I don't need to be sent away from the text, right? Yeah. Necessarily. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Or, or you do, you know, it's one of the, right, it's, right, it's, it's right. a decision you have to make in the moment where it's like, right. okay, I'm either going to go and, uh, and pursue, um, I'm going to go and pursue study or I'm going to stay here and I'm going to keep reading. Right. And so right. it's not, it's not as easy as looking down in, into the footnotes and getting a, a, an easy answer and then moving back into the text like you would with a, with a typical Bible. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think, um, you know that the it's funny you use that word disorienting. I've heard that word used <laughs> a lot about bibliotheca, um, and and people always make that disclaimer too, where it's like, oh, not in a bad way, but it, it it is very strange to read the Bible and not know where I am, right. and because that's just how we're used to reading the Bible. But also the way the language goes. I was talking to um, one of the we we had two different proofreading companies read through the text. And um, I was talking to the owner of the second one, and she was telling me that um, it took her proofreaders, the, the people on her team who worked on Bibliotheca, at mm -hmm. least six hours to become accustomed to the style mm -hmm. before they could really huh. perceive things. Yeah. Um, huh. Because our our because the the type of English that the type of English that is the type of punctuation that we that we've um used is so strange um compared to a contemporary english translation and i think um you know 
I, my choice to use the ASV as a base translation and to preserve a lot of its um, its archaic archaic luster um, <laughs> is the it, it comes a lot from my reading of Robert Alter, um, especially and others like him, like Everett Fox um, and other people who have comment, commented on how the older versions um, actually ended up. Uh, in their in their efforts to give a pretty straightforward representation of the underlying underlying languages, actually ended up um, giving us uh, probably the best representation of the text, despite all of the advances uh, in lexicography and um, and critical texts that we've had since the time of the older versions. Um, just because the approach to translation was not to make the text easy or to remove the difficulties from the text, hmm. but to represent it. Um, hmm. and it was to represent it in another language, yes, but the language, the target language, um, was always made to bend to the original languages, whereas in contemporary translation, um, the opposite is true. So the English, um, the, the English becomes the priority, so the original languages are made to bend to the English. Um, to the extent that even, um, you know, if you have a, if you have a paragraph, uh, what, what we would translate into a paragraph um, in the Hebrew that uses the same word five times back to back, very close in proximity to one another, um, you know, you, you, contemporary English translations um, in the interest of, quote, good English style, um, Will ch will change the usage so that it's not the same word every time. But then we're obscuring a repetition that may have been very intentional, um, by may have been intentionally employed by the biblical writer. So that's the type of thing that it, that caught that led us to use the ASV. But it also means that the English is not your English. Mm -hmm. It's it's an English. It's a Hebraic English or a. Uh, 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 Greek-sized English. I'm not sure how, what the yeah, word is there, yeah. but um, so it's well, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it also it it reminds us that that the scriptures are um, uh, are are there. There's a mystery and a wonder there that I think can be recaptured with a, a, a more representational approach of the original original languages. There's a strangeness of a form. Um, you know that uh, can be lost in 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 some of the modern translations that are that are more uh, I guess interpretive in their mm -hmm. aims to to translate and um, what you know there's many examples that we came across uh, the word seed for instance is one of those words that occurs uh, numerous times in in the Hebrew Bible and uh, you know the percentage of of it its rendering as seed is uh i can't remember with the uh with the kjv and the asv was it's it's pretty consistent it's almost it's almost entirely translated the word zera in hebrew is almost entirely translated as rendered as seed in english hmm. um and in the newer versions uh the post-war versions really since the revised standard version of 1952 you start to see that word translated in dozens of different ways um offspring it, yeah offspring uh inheritance or all kinds of 
semen, you know, they, they, they start to explain to the reader what the Hebrew writer meant. Um, but the word seed for the English reader, and this is an argument that Robert Alter makes, um, the English reader isn't so dim as, as not to be able to decipher what the Hebrew writer meant when he uses the word seed in a, in a given context. And beyond that, he could mean more than one thing. Yeah, so, God forbid we use metaphors. Right. right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, that, and that's, I think, a good point. The, the fact that it, it also points to us kind of symbolic vocabulary that, that is there. Hmm. Um, and, and you lose some of that. You lose some of the types and, and some of the images. Hmm. Another, uh, another one I, I um, remember is from um, the, the Genesis narrative and, and surrounding Joseph, um, which is amazing. I think that was one of the most enlightening parts that, that I got to experience was, was reading that. And um, one of the words that keeps coming up was hand. Um, there was another word that the ASV translated as when Joseph is sold into slavery, I think it, there was this, um, there was a, a word that um, he was he was sold by his brothers, right? Um, uh, and and uh, they were they were sellers of spicery. I think was was the word. If you do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And and spicery. Um, it was like spicery. What what? <laughs> you know, most modern modern. I'm using that know, word. We're like, okay, get rid of that. You know, what what is that? Cut Man, that people out, have such know. bad taste. Right. <laughs> but um, what was interesting is that, that that word spicery, I mean, we do a search on like Bible Gateway. It only occurs like twice in the hmm. ASV. Hmm. The only other time that it occurs is when Joseph is back in ruling in Egypt and his brothers are coming to him with gifts. Hmm. Okay. So what you have is this incredible like narrative bookending of, of this um, see of, of this scenario in Joseph's life where he's sold um, to these traders of spicery and then his brothers are bringing back basically the price uh, uh, that they sold him. It's almost like this kind of atonement that they're paying, right? Hmm. Um, it's just like amazing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what in the world? And, you, you, and yeah. you know, maybe the average reader would, would totally not get that and just say, oh, spicery, that's weird, whatever. But, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that I think would we we were maybe trying to preserve. Yeah, so. and when you take that kind of stuff out, it certainly doesn't like help you or teach you or guide you to actually paying attention. No, sure, yeah, no, yeah. Well, you you can't. I mean, unless you <laughs> unless you read the Hebrew or the Greek, you, you're you're not given the ability to perceive these um, and enveloping. Uh, tactics that the biblical writers use to engage their readers. You know, yeah, they just, like, that they're they're inviting you to participate in these um, in these methods that they employ. But if you don't know they're there, if you're not even given the ability by the translator to perceive them, then you can't you can't participate. Yeah, one thing I love about what you guys have done, I think the thing that maybe for me has been the most. Um, the the thing that's come to the surface the most for me is like that you guys have emphasized the poetry of scripture, even the non, the stuff that we don't like, even stuff that's not technically poetry, you know, like the Psalms or whatever, mm. but like there's a, you've emphasized the poetry of it and you've done that both visually and through the translation. And I think that's something that I, it's, it's so easy to forget about. Like sometimes I don't even, I forget that the Psalms are poetry, you know, it's so easy to <laughs> yeah. forget that about 
scripture um because maybe it's the way we've approached it or like the scientific approach that we've that we've kind of learned to to have with it as you guys mentioned you know kind of at the at the outset of this Mm -hmm. conversation but i really i like you can feel the poetry i think in it a lot in a a way that i've never felt with other translations and other uh, like experiences with scripture so that's a pretty cool thing Uh, i hope Mm -hmm. our listeners who have not had an experience with this the books yet will will for that reason if for no other reason you know try it out check it out if someone you know owns it or something but yeah i mean or get your own copy (laughs) (laughs) well on that note we've been asked a lot to make samples available so that's something that we're working on to make you know small samples of the text available so people can get a feel for this this style that we're talking about because it is definitely unique among contemporary versions it's not your typical um version but i would also encourage anybody who's interested in this in that type of approach to translation, uh, to read the work of Robert Alter, um, and Everett Fox and Gerald Hammond. Um, these are all guys who have written pretty extensively on the, uh, the benefits and the drawbacks of modern translation versus the older approach. And they kind of, they have sort of adopted the old approach as a superior model. Um, for people who are interested in the mechanics of the text, uh, which which really is the, I mean, Hebrew narrative especially is constructed in a way that where, where meaning is extracted from these uh, from these methods that the writers are using. So, to get a full sense of the text, you have to you have to let the the reader of English um, encounter what the Hebrew. Um, makes available. So it's, mm. and it's not an easy task, but they, they talk a lot about how it can be done and they actually do it. So Robert Alter and Everett Fox have both translated much of the Hebrew Bible. Um, mm. And it's, it's fascinating. And they've, there are articles available on the internet that you can read uh, about these guys. But, you know, it's, they were very, I mean, if I hadn't read their work um, and their thinking on the matter, I probably would have chosen something like you know, the RSV or the ESV or the NIV or something. But, you know, yeah. I, I, I was, my opinion of, um, it, it's not that those things aren't good. I think that they are, you know, I think that that type of translation is a right. good thing to have. Um, it's right. just that the type of experience that we wanted to foster here within these, within the covers of Bibliotheca was, um, was more like, uh, was this more meditative, um, immersive experience that invites the reader really deeper into the text than uh, contemporary translations allow? Hmm. Okay, so we probably should wrap it up. We're at an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> so I got, I got two final questions for you. And, um, okay. This, this should be, two. they should be short. No, they should be short ones. They should be short ones. This goes to both of you. I want to hear both okay. of your answers on this. So the first uh, one is, if someone wrote in the margins of their book, would you have a heart attack or would you support this? Uh, I'll answer first. I would absolutely support it. I don't, okay. I don't have any issue with that. Okay. And I'll, I'll finish that answer by saying that I think the, the, the misconception of Bibliotheca is that, it's, is that it should be treated like mm. your grandmother's china. Mm. But I think... Because they are, it's nice material. It is written. I mean, they're made of nice materials and they're well made and they look really pristine when you pull them out of the box. 
And I guess but, it's not twelve ninety nine from like books a million or whatever, but no, no, it's not. It's not. It's it's pretty. You know, but my opinion on books is that covers are made to protect books, and you should use them that way. So I think, um, you know, it's okay to let your books get worn, to write in your books, to let them right. be worn in. I mean, unless you're a collector and you want them to maintain their value. You should use yeah, your yeah. books and yeah. take them with you when you like when you go on a flight or you know that I I love seeing um, I, I've I've only on one occasion like I, I went over we were actually creating a new video for Bibliotheca hmm. and we um, I asked a friend of mine to be in the video and bring his copy of Bibliotheca. And I brought I brought my own spare copy because I wanted to dirty it up and, and like make it look more worn in so that people wouldn't to, to kind of offset this perception that it needs to be treated like hmm. this precious object. Yeah. But he brought his and it looked like he had thrown it like <laughs> in his trunk hundreds of times and probably like <laughs> used, used it as like a stepping stool or something. <laughs> <laughs> really just beaten it to death. Like maybe, I was so thrilled. Oh, okay. That wasn't one step yeah. too far. No, because it's his, you know, it's, yeah. it's his book and it's yeah. his to use the way he wants. And the nice thing about it is it's, it's made well, so it's sturdy. It'll hold up. I mean, yeah. maybe yeah. his kids will have to have it rebound or something, but yeah. it's, it's yeah. not, um, you know, it's, it's not something that should sit on your shelf. The point of it is, is to be something that you, that you take with you and you read anyway. Yeah. yeah well, and, and you, you agree. I, mean, I do agree. And I'll follow that up with just, I mean, although it does, you know, it isn't just twelve ninety nine, and you know, um, but that was the purpose, also, right? It's 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 quality, and and with quality materials, and the, the papers made with like beaten titanium, and you know, it's it's there. <laughs> part of that is that it's it's built to last as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I I will also say that um, yeah, I so when I read, I always mark up my books. I love it. I have a relationship with the book through. Uh, a mediated object of like pencil or pen. And, um, you know, I think that's really important. However, and I, and I, and I do believe that <clears throat> that's why I love the margins in, in Bibliotheca and I, I love the space for that, but I have yet to do that to my own. I'm like, <laughs> I can't do it yet. It's so, it's so beautiful. I just can't enter in yet. So yeah, once um, you, I, once you do it though, all bets are off, right? Like once you've marked right, it up right. once, once, once I underline the first yeah, sentence, <laughs> Okay. So, uh, last question then is I'm, I'm curious what, um, what, what role do the, do the Bibliotheca, uh, books have in your own scripture reading, like in your own, you know, your own contemplative life. So, I mean, do you like, do you use it? Is it the only thing you read? Um, and I'm not asking you to tell other people what to do. I'm just curious what you as the designers do, or do you also have, like, you also read your ESV study Bible with notes by John MacArthur or whoever. (laughs) Um, no, you know, I, I will, I will say that I, you know, it took me a while to, to actually pick it up, um, to get back into it, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, after after the process, not because I didn't want to, but um, partially because uh, <clears throat> I was, uh, you know, just so overwhelmed with wanting it to be uh, done well uh, on my end, and and so um, I just started getting back into the text and, and reading it pretty regularly. So um, yeah, I'm I'm reading uh, I'm reading the Apocrypha right now. 
which I've, I've never spent a whole lot of time in. And, um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And it is different, you know? I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're used to, uh, if, if you read the, the Bible, you're used to maybe reading it chapter by chapter or something like that. And so, um, you know, the places where you stop and, 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 you know, where you start, maybe don't totally feel the same, but, um, but yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, um, that is what I'm reading now, but not at the exclusion of other, uh, of other translations or of other texts, uh, of other, oh, yeah. um, Bibles that I have, you know, I mean, Adam made the point that, uh, you know, there's sometimes it's, it's, you want to go look something up and in another uh, Bible and say, what was that? You know, what, what would that, you know, where have I heard that differently? And, and so, um, Mm-hmm. It's. I'm not excluding other other Bible readings, but I have I have been reading that lately. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, the um, yeah, I think what Devin was trying to say there at the beginning was we both were so close to it for so long. Yes, yes. We when it was done, we were sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't want to say that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, for me. Yeah, that, maybe those aren't the right words, but I think I... I mean, it makes sense. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I worked on it for so long, and we were so closely um, intertwined. Are you, can you hear me? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay. We were so closely intertwined with all of the issues and the text, and yes. we were looking so closely at specific problems. And, yeah. um, and so... I think, especially for me, who was not only on the editorial end of things mm-hmm. with the team, um, but also doing the design and typesetting and everything like that, it was just, I was so immersed in it for so long that when it was finally done, um, and I, I still haven't really fully recovered. I, I have actually, I was just telling Devin the other day that I finally have been able to pull it off the shelf and read it for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. But still I'm, I'm more likely to be reading, you know, some, the translations of Robert Alter or Everett Fox or, yeah, yeah. um, really excited by the way that, uh, David oh, yes. is coming out with a new translation of the new Testament, right. um, oh, this wow. fall. And I, um, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to get him on the podcast now. Let me know if you do. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just sit quietly. So yeah. I, and yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I'll try to get him. I'll try to convince him to let me do a special edition of his New Testament. But oh yeah, um, oh, wow. The yeah, the thing that um, oh, where was I going with that? But sorry, anyway, sorry. yeah, my my the the thing that Bibliotheca it it sort of it drew me into um, especially the translation philosophy. So I chose Bibliotheca for for a, for that reason coming from that angle but it drew me in deeper and so i've become more interested in that type of thing so now i'm uh you know i want to read more so i'm I'm already thinking about the second edition of bibliotheca and how we might further revise the text for the next edition um you know i think it would be really great to to work with maybe not robert alter and everett fox themselves but 
but people like them um, to try to even bring to bring more clarity um, to the text. Um, clarity, not in the sense of of ease, but in the sense of transparency. Mm-hmm. So um, between the English reader and the original languages. So you know, I I am reading all over the place now, but in Bibliotheca is is slowly becoming part of my regular reading, uh, but but not yeah. not. Not quickly, very slowly. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll add to that too. I mean, um, uh, I did pick up the Psalms the, the, the other day, and I was uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. So I, I, I mean, I, I think the that the Psalms are are uh, just poetry in general is is something that is is uh, seriously misunderstood today, <laughs> and. Uh, um, you know, when it comes to the Psalms, um, uh, I think, you know, being able to recapture, uh, the beauty of the language in, in verse is, is really, really, really important. And so, um, and I really enjoyed that. So that was, that was something that I should add, um, really, really enjoyed the, the Psalms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, I think one of the things I, th- I mentioned it earlier, but the Psalms yes. is, is one of yes. the, is the book that maybe that for me is my favorite right now. I mean, it's the Bible. Yes. So to say like, it's my favorite is kind of weird, but, um, <laughs> you know, but like as far as how it's transformed my experience, I think that's the one that's been the most sure. meaningful so far. Um, yeah, yeah. but anyway, thank you so much. We spent a bunch of time together. Thank you so much. We kind of, yeah, you know, thanks, I'm sure there's people out there who are like, really enjoying the, the nerding out on typography and stuff. So, um, <laughs> hopefully people learn something too. <laughs> I'm sure you lost a few too. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so people can still with us. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and head over to, uh, it's bibliotheca.co, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And do you have, is it's available right now, right? People can still just order a copy. It is, yeah. Okay. We still have, yeah, the uh, plenty of the full five volume set. Okay, uh, includes includes the apocrypha. Uh, we have still plenty of those left from the first printing of the first edition. Okay, awesome. Well, again, thanks so much for joining me, and um, I'm gonna go home and read some. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, yeah, thank you, David. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.